Are there any of you out there who uh, qualify as mountain climbers? Anybody did any mountain climbing? I mean, not real mountain climbers. If you just did some mountain climbing, not like in Brown County, that doesn't count, right? I mean, a real mountain, a few of you? Yeah. I've never really done mountain climbing. I've been on the top of uh, some pretty tall places. Went down to the Grand Canyon one time, but that was canyon climbing, I guess. But I understand um, a little bit about mountain climbing just from hearing about it. And among other things, what I understand about mountain climbing is this. For mountain climbers, it's primarily about two things. Maybe this is too reductionistic if you're a true climber. It's about the journey, which includes all the challenges, and it's about the destination. When you get to the top, you realize you've accomplished it, you're at the pinnacle, and you look down. Now, when it comes to the people of Israel that we've been looking at for the last few weeks, it seems like to me, to use the mountain climbing image, They focused on only two things. One, the deliverance, and two, the destination. But they seem to miss the importance of the journey. And we hear this message being delivered to us over and over again in the text. Today, in this reading, it's an example of that. But actually, there are two other passages that precede this one that are remarkably similar, a little different but similar, and and I wanted to point them out as well. The first story comes in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus, the first water story. Here's what's remarkable about that story. If you're going to be a narrator and write a story, you're basically painting a picture, right? You're asking the readership to come into this picture that you're painting. The narrator of the book of Exodus is painting a picture and he's writing a sequence of events. And you know what he does? He takes his pen and he records the words of a song. A song of jubilation and joy And he describes a scene of dancing when the song is going on. And then the very next verse, the scene changes. It's not like it was at the very end of the song that the scene changed, but the narrator wants you to see the stark contrast between what seems like moments earlier they were singing and moments later they were complaining. The song in chapter 15 of Exodus is a song of Moses and Miriam. Miriam apparently had a lot to do with writing this song and singing this song and leading the women in the singing of the song with dancing. And right at the end of the song, we hear this description. When Moses led the people of Israel out of the Red Sea, they went into the desert of Shur. For about three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. 
in the next few verses describe a situation like you heard read a few moments ago. The people of Israel couldn't find any water for three days. And when they finally came upon some water, the water they found was bitter. And they cried out against Moses and vicariously against God. And Moses cried out to God and said, what am I supposed to do? We've heard this story before. It begins with the crossing of the Red Sea, even further back than that with the plagues, and it continues on through his life. Moses says, what am I supposed to do with these people? And God says, here, here's what you're supposed to do. Pick up this stick and take the stick and throw it in the water. And when he threw it in the water, the water which was bitter became sweet. The water which they could not drink, they could now be no longer thirsty. Moses throws the stick in the water, and just exactly as God said, the water became sweet. And they drank the water. But the narrator tells us something else. He says, God told these people, this water that's sweet, it's not just about quenching your thirst. This water that's sweet is about me and about what I'm going to do for you if you follow me. As a matter of fact, if you follow me, follow my commands and do as I say, all the things that happened to the Egyptians, all the diseases that were a part of their culture, they won't fall on you. I will be your healer. I'll be your God if you follow me. The next story um, is in chapter 16. Now get this, the first time they complained to Moses and to God is three days after they were delivered from the Red Sea. The next time they complain to Moses and to God is roughly six weeks later. The second story is they're wandering in the desert and they don't like their food or they don't have enough of the food that they wish they had. As a matter of fact, they get really shrill. They say to God, why didn't you just let us die in Egypt if you wanted to kill us? They didn't say, why didn't you just let us waste away? They said, if you intended to kill us here, why didn't you kill us back there? Why? Because when we were back there, we had pots of meat all around us. We had a banquet at our table. We had everything we wanted. So why didn't you just kill us when we were fat and happy instead of dragging us out here into the desert? And God says to them and to Moses, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to rain down food from heaven. Moses people of God, you've got your eyes on the land. You're looking 360 degrees all around you. You're looking for your food. You're complaining of what you don't have. And out of the thin air, out of this space up here where there's nothing, I'm going to rain down food for you because I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. And I'm in charge of this and I'm in charge of you. So here you go. And out of nowhere, quail begin to descend all over the land. They had a feast of quail. But more than that, he told them the next morning when you wake up, there's going to be these wafers on the ground. They called it manna. 
Best translation is, what is it? Wafers on the ground. They were like thin pancakes, apparently. Sort of like soaked in honey, except crisp and wafer-like and flaky and good. He said, I'm going to rain down meat, and then I'm going to rain down manna, but I want you to know something. I am the Lord your God, and I'm supplying your needs. And when you go out to collect that stuff in the morning, don't collect any extra. Don't hoard it. Just take what you need for one day. Some of them refused to take the advice of God, and they hoarded it, and they woke up the next morning to eat the manna or the quail, and it had maggots in it. Furthermore, God said, on the sixth day, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to give you more than you need for one day. I'm going to give you what you need for two days. But this time, it won't go bad. Because I'm the Lord your God. I'm in charge of your life. I'm in charge of your sustenance. So do as I say. So most of the people collected enough for two days. And some of the people didn't. And went out the next day to find no manna. It's at this point that God is exasperated. He says to Moses and to them, how long are you not going to listen to me? How long are you going to be disobedient in the face of the God who provides? He says to Moses, I want you to take some of this manna. I want you to put it in a jar. And we know later that jar was put in what we call the Ark of the Covenant and preserved He said, I want you to put it in that jar because I want you and these people to remember that it was I who provided for their needs. The narrator writes in, in retrospect, at the end of that chapter, and he did this for 40 years. God just rained down manna, brought them water, gave them everything they needed in the middle of the desert, for 40 years. The third story is the one that was read just a few moments ago. You know why the third story is so remarkable? Because God has already provided them water. Because they've left Egypt and the Red Sea was parted for them. Because God, out of nowhere, brought down manna and quail. And in spite of all that reality... In the section that was just read, they complain against Moses and against God. Why'd you bring us out here into this desert, they say, to die of thirst, all of us and our livestock? Moses says to God, what am I supposed to do now? You you hear in Moses' words that things have gotten even worse. They haven't gotten better. The people haven't learned more. They've forgotten more. Because the escalated nature of the conflict that's in front of him is this. He says, these people are about to stone me this time, God. What am I supposed to do? And God says, take your staff and strike the rock. And when you strike the rock, water will come out for the people. And it did. And their needs were once again supplied. I want you to notice in in these stories, there's certain themes that run through them. First theme I'll call to your attention is this. When the people were under duress, when they were frustrated, when they were hungry, when they were tired, when things weren't so good, 
they complained against Moses and Aaron. It's one of the most prominent themes in the Pentateuch. Let me put it another way. When things got bad, they looked for somebody to blame. It was always their leaders for the most part. But they looked for somebody to blame. Do you see yourself in the text? I do. I mean, I don't see you, I see me uh, in the text. (laughs) Whenever things get really bad, I start looking for someone or something to blame. Most of the time, it's the people that are closest to me that love me the most, like my wife, who continues to stay with me in spite of the fact that when it's bad, I complain and frequently blame her. Or maybe it's my kids I blame. Or you know what? Maybe it's, maybe it's you that I blame. That's a true confession. That's what pastors do sometimes. When things get bad, we get angry with the people. Moses was there, and it did him in. Who do you blame? You know what's ironic? Is that sometimes we don't blame other people. When things are really bad, we even blame ourselves. Oh, I mean, there's enough blame to go around. We've always done things that are bad. But here's the story you see. The story is this. God had planned to test these people. End of story. It didn't make any difference what Moses did. It didn't make any difference what the weather was. It didn't make any difference what they did. God had decided to test them. And so just like me, they blame someone else, or perhaps like you and I, we actually blame ourselves. If I'd just done this, if I'd ordered my life that way, if circumstances had been different, I would have, I could have nonsense. There are times, my friends, when God is testing our mettle, and it makes no difference what you've done, what someone else has done, or who you can point the blame on. God is the active agent in testing you to accomplish his will in you and through you. That's the reality of life with God sometimes. So they continually complain against Moses. Second major theme I see is they've got an incredibly short memory. (laughs) Three days... They cried out to God and said, why didn't you just leave us, in the wild, uh, leave us back in Egypt because we can't even get a drink out here? Oh, by the way, notice the text doesn't say that they had no water for three days. Okay, what foolish group of people, knowing they were going to travel across the desert, wouldn't take some water with them? Of course they took some water with them. We don't know what the circumstances were and how low their canteens were or even if they were at the bottom. What we know is this. They got out three days and there was no water. 
They were not dying of thirst. They were in a bad situation and all they could see was thirst. And they couldn't believe that they could live. And they had incredibly short memories. Because only three days earlier, God had parted the Red Sea. And if God can part the Red Sea, and God is leading them on their journey, isn't it real likely that God will supply their needs? But they can't remember. My, that one rings true. You know what is one of the things that's characteristic of children is they've got short-term memories compared to adults because they haven't experienced as much life. As a matter of fact, it, it's the disposition of a child to be more impatient because they haven't experienced a long-term wait. So the analogy seems to be so important here. The people of God are called to grow up, to be mature. They're called not to be infants anymore, and God is testing them. And their short-term memory seems more like children than it does like adults, as it frequently does for us. There's a third theme in these stories that's really the worst theme of all. Here it is. They are refusing to believe that God is faithful. See, they're not a group of people who are just saying, oh God, I don't know if we can go another step here. Lord, we're thirsty. My kid's crying. God, how much longer will you please come through? God, our backs are to the wall. We understand now. Please provide our needs. None of that is the language of these texts. The text indicates that they did not believe that God was faithful. In spite of the fact that God had been faithful, they absolutely refused to believe that he was going to do it again. Deliverance may have happened in the past, but that wasn't the God of their future. They refused to believe that God was faithful. And their complaining was an assault on God's goodness. I, I know you've been there, right? When you are under the pressure of whatever life brings you and you feel like you're going to break, it's faithful to cry out to God. It's faithful to say, God, I don't know how much more I can take. It's faithful to say, God, when are you going to show up? If you don't believe that's faithful, look at Jesus on the cross. Lord, are you going to show up? Why are you leaving me here forsaken? But there's a different theme going on here. It's not that theme. It's a theme of people who are assaulting the very character and goodness of God by saying, you won't come through. And I don't believe 
in your goodness. My suggestion uh, for those of us who walk by faith and not by sight is that we frequently live on that precipice. Sometimes on the right side of crying out to God, sometimes on the wrong side of charging God with unfaithfulness. I think it's interesting that the theme, not only does it not end in these chapters of Exodus, not only does it go through the Pentateuch, not only does it go through the Old Testament, the theme goes right into the New Testament and right up until today. There is nothing for sure that's new under the sun. So when we get to the New Testament, we hear this theme. Jesus says to those who are listening on one occasion, I want you to know something. You shouldn't spend your time worrying about tomorrow. Look at the birds of the field. God cares for them. They don't sow away in barns. They don't reap. They don't do those kinds of things. But your heavenly Father knows their needs and he cares for them. Why do you worry so much? Stop worrying about tomorrow because tomorrow is going to take care of itself. He doesn't say stop working. You ever seen a bird that stops working? It's one that's either they're hatching babies or dying. That's what it is. Birds work. He didn't say stop working. He said stop worrying. He said stop pretending like life is utterly dependent upon you and your activity. Because I'm going to supply your needs. And I know them even before you ask. So don't worry like that. Among other things, I think it's fascinating who Jesus was primarily speaking to on that day. See, what we do is we look at the text and we apply it to ourselves. And that's true, we ought to. But you know who Jesus was talking to? He was talking to poor people who would have thought us kings. He was talking to people who for all intents and purposes compared to us live from one day to the next. He was talking, can I get real contemporary? To those who didn't even know what health care was or riches were. They knew nothing except hard life. One commentator who studied first century cities quite extensively described it this way. He said, in the modern world, it's hard for us to even imagine what it was like. With limited water and means of sanitation, the incredible density of human beings and animals is really beyond our imagination. Tenement cubicles were smoky, dark, often cramped, and always dirty. The smell of sweat, urine, feces, and decay permeated everything. Outside on the street, it was little better. Mud, open sewers, manure, and crowds. In fact, sometimes human corpses Adults as well as infants. 
or sometimes pushed into the street and abandoned. It's likely that the people that he spoke to when he said, don't worry, lived under these conditions. Really? You're all so beautiful and well-clothed and happy and really were quite smug. And he said to those people, don't worry. Now does it stick more when he says to us, don't worry? I've showered you with so many blessings, you can't even count them. Don't worry. Things seem difficult in your life, I'm in charge. Don't worry. The theme's not just in Matthew, of course. You find it other places. In the epistles of Paul, one of them read this morning at the opening of our worship set is from Philippians. Paul, who was in prison, who said, in spite of the fact that I'm in chains, the gospel's being proclaimed, Paul, in those circumstances, difficult as they may be, said, I'm going to give you an admonition. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Don't be anxious or worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Do you see the difference between through prayer and supplication, passionate supplication, presenting your requests to God instead of charging God with not taking care of you? Present your request to God. And I want to tell you what will happen, Paul says. The peace of God, which overarches or transcends human understanding, which makes no sense compared to reality, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. And he said at the end, God is going to supply your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, don't worry. God's your provider. The final passage I refer to comes in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus is reflecting back on what has just happened. He fed the 5,000, and everybody is running after him, hordes of people, asking questions, asking for more, wanting to know what's the next big deal. And Jesus basically turns to them and says, stop already. You're talking about food that you got on the mountainside. You're asking questions, which they did, about manna that came from heaven in the desert. Sort of like, what are you going to do for us, Jesus? I want to tell you something. First of all, the manna didn't come from Moses. It came from me. The preexistent Son of God. Incarnate now, but existing before time. It came from me. And as a matter of fact, you've got your focus all wrong. It's not about bread for your bellies. It's about food for your soul. I am the bread of life. Come to me and you'll never be hungry. Come to me and you'll never thirst. Don't invest in food that spoils and things that spoil. 
invest in eternal life. You know, that, that sums up what God's trying to teach us, I think. Stop worrying about life. Stop thinking about stuff. And focus on the eternal life that comes through me. We believe in eternal life, right? Don't we? But do we focus on it? Does it define the reality that we call today? Or is it just an idea for the future? I wonder what it would look like if eternal life defined today life. I'm not sure altogether, but I do think of an analogy. <laughs> it was um, actually a long time ago now, more than 30 years, when on October 11th, I ordered a dozen roses to be delivered to the house of a beautiful girl called Brenda. You know what? I'll never forget that day. I'll tell you why. I was working all day long. And I did my work better than ever. I was sweating and it was hot, but the day seemed cool. I didn't miss a beat, but the whole time I couldn't get my mind off of her. See, the reality of my day was redefined by my love for a woman. I remember another time. It's when our first child was born. When David was born, I went to work. I was productive. I think better than ever. But I couldn't stop thinking about it. And the stores that I normally had draw, driven past and not thought another thing about them, I couldn't help but think about getting something for my little boy. And from that day on, with two children, the focus of my life was absolutely different. My life changed forever. And even to this day, grown as they are, every part of my life is touched by those three beautiful people. They redefined my reality. I think God is calling us to allow eternal life, a relationship with him, to redefine our reality. Every circumstance, every event of life redefined in light of his grace. Oh, concerning where you are, I'm not sure where that is. 
But if your circumstances seem overwhelming, they're not to God. If your perspective on life is, as it always is, limited, God's perspective is eternal. And this life, we know it as counted by hours and days. Eternal life. It's real. There is no time. It's forever. And it's the life that we inherit through Jesus Christ. Can you imagine anything more important? What's your focus? I pray that beginning Monday and following on that, every day of this week will be reoriented around eternal life, which is real life. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your your living word. You're the word of life, and as we uncover these stories once again, which for many of us are so familiar, your word becomes life to us. No God. We just thank you for that word. It's it's not just music to our ears. It's life to us. We also thank you, Lord, that not only do we have this, this written word, we have you, the living word, who has described himself in the words of Jesus as the bread of life. Lord, when we come to you, uh, you feed us everything we need. You give us water that makes sure that we're never thirsty. And Lord, we realize that when we fail to focus in the midst of the hecticness of life on the eternal perspective that is yours, the eternal life that's given to us, we become really hungry and really thirsty. And we want things that won't satisfy. So Lord, refocus us this week. Give us the grace to see you as the bread of life. Give us the understanding that comes through your word so that we can experience once again eternal life. Lord, I pray for someone who may be here this morning who doesn't know eternal life because they don't know it through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. I pray, Lord, that in the next few moments, even as we sing, they will open their hearts to you. They'll admit their condition as people who are desperately in need of your grace because they're sinful. They will recognize that the stuff they're holding on to is like a vapor and that they will turn to you, Jesus Christ, and ask you to come into their life and to transform them and forgive them by your grace and that today will be a new beginning, a journey that will never end, that will be a walk to eternal life. 
For these things we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.